Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Thanks for being with us in the middle of the summer. Uh, I'm weary, uh, not because I work so hard, but because I've been in New York City with my wife for the last three days on our 10th anniversary trip, which was only three years, two months, and three days late. Um, so I'm going to try to be as coherent as possible this morning, seeing that I am working on about five hours sleep four nights in a row, because that's what you do when you go to New York City. Uh, we are in the middle of a series working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've gotten just about through this ma- main portion in the middle of Matthew where Matthew is posing the question, what does it mean for us to live as Jesus' disciples? He wants us to hear the teachings of Jesus and obey. And so we've been focusing on a lot of these narratives of Jesus' teaching and what it means to live in the kingdom of God and what it means to live as his disciples. And we come to yet another passage that is confounding and convicting and hard. And it's my job to try to help us understand it and Live it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with us, you can. We're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 17 and read two verses there and then go to Matthew 18 verses 1 through 14. But if you don't, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. Uh, I believe we'll have this right on the screen behind me. And by the way, the, the typo is my fault, not anybody else's. That's what I get for trying to get out of town in the middle of the week earlier in the service. So forgive us for that. But let's read this passage of Scripture together. Uh, from, from Matthew 17 and Matthew 18. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now listen, watch the contrast here. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand... Or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet than to be thrown in the fire, than than to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. This is God's word. As I said last week, from this time forward in the gospel narrative, Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus begins to talk, and we see this here in verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 17, which is why we included it. He begins to talk more and more about the suffering and the death that await him in Jerusalem. And what happens is, it's just fascinating, at the same exact time, as Jesus begins to talk more and more about going down to Jerusalem to suffer and die, his disciples begin to plan for their ascendancy into the kingdom of heaven. 
And you see this juxtaposition in this passage in Matthew 17, 22, and 23, and then the question posed in Matthew 18, 1. The disciples want to know there in verse 1 what kinds of people are considered great in the kingdom of heaven. They obviously have a certain idea. They have certain assumptions about how things will work, Very probably very similar to our own assumptions. Um, but they want, to, they want to test Jesus about it. And so if I were to ask you this morning about our own society and our own culture, the world we live in, who are the great? Who are the greatest? We'd probably make a list that would go something like this. The rich, the powerful, the beautiful, celebrities, intellectuals, stars, professional athletes, politicians. You know, these people are the first or the best or the mighty or those that should be envied. Because in our society, greatness is making it, isn't it? It's... Success, it's achievement, it's having the esteem of other people. That's what it means to be great. And that's the way it works in the world. But what Jesus is showing us here is that in the kingdom of heaven, things are very different because the kingdom of heaven is not like the world. It's something entirely new and different. And to illustrate this, don't you love Jesus? What Jesus does is he gets a little child and he brings the child and puts them in the midst, you know, puts that child in the midst of the disciples and he looks at the child and he says, this is greatness in my kingdom. And the lesson could be easily lost on us because we are the exact opposite of the people in Jesus' day in the sense that if there is a cultural trend, it is that we tend to idolize our children. We tend to, to overvalue our children. Uh, but in Jesus' day and time, it was the exact opposite. In that day, children were undervalued. They weren't overvalued. They were undervalued. Children were considered unimportant, insignificant, Nothings, And some of it even comes out in the original language, because when, when Jesus talks about uh, bringing this child, he, the, the Greek doesn't even assign a gender identity to the child. It's not a he or she, it's an it. I mean, I remember how yucky, if any of you have had kids, do you remember when the child's in the womb and you don't know whether it's a he or she yet, right? But doesn't it feel yucky to say it, to refer to that baby as it? It's moving. Right, because because there's just it just seems like there's more dignity to the but but this child Matthew says is just an it, it's nothing, I mean it's insignificant this this little kid unimportant, and Jesus is trying to teach them and us how wrong we are in assessing value and status to certain types of people. Again, we've been so twisted and corrupted by sin that we place great value on things that are in truth not very valuable, and we walk by. Oftentimes, the things and the people that are the most valuable. And Jesus says he values, unlike the world, humility. That's what's most beautiful to him, a heart of humility, like the heart of a child. Greatness is humility. It's childlikeness. It's being little in your own eyes. And so, see, the kingdom of heaven that's being revealed here is so upside down, or really, I'd like to say it's so right side up. That what we're learning is it requires a conversion. You have to turn and become like a little child. Do you see that there in those verses, verses 3 and 4? You have to change. You have to repent, we're told. For the kingdom of heaven is at near. It's the constant refrain in the Gospels we've been seeing. To enter this kingdom Jesus is talking about, you have to change. You have to learn or relearn. You have to learn a whole new set of priorities and values and practices. And actually the translation there in verse Three, where Jesus says, unless you turn, the translation really is unless you have been turned. The verb is passive. It's not something you do. 
It's something that's done to you or in you. In other words, unless God does a powerful work in your heart to make you a completely different person and turn your life upside down, Jesus says you've not yet entered the kingdom. And the illustration of that is this little child. Now, that does two things by way of introduction, and then we're going to get into the text. First, it sets expectations. Now, if you're here... And I know there's some of you who are. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian or you're thinking about becoming a Christian or you're very new to church and to Christianity, you're just barely a Christian. Jesus' words, I think, help you understand what it means to be a Christian. It isn't just starting to come to church or read your Bible a little bit or, you know, whatever those things might be. When you put your faith in Jesus and commit to following him, it requires a radical reorientation of your whole life. Secondly, it serves as a warning, and my concern in this regard is just this, for many of us who've been in church for a long time, that the reality of our lives is that our values and priorities and practices still mirror popular American culture more than they do the teachings of Jesus and the priorities of his kingdom. Our culture places importance on individual strength and determination and competitiveness, right? And getting ahead. And Jesus places importance on community and humility and dependence in these things. And a lot of us have lived our lives in the church without embracing the kingdom. We've tried to be Christians without conversion. And Jesus reminds us that it doesn't work that way. We have to turn. We have to change. We have to repent. We have to be turned. We have to be different. We have to, we have to be converted. And if we don't, we may be quote-unquote church people, but we're not yet citizens of his kingdom. So... What does that repentance look like that he calls us to? And I think this passage helps us with that. So three things from this passage that we want to see as we talk about these things. And the first is we want to see what's wrong with the human heart, why it needs to be converted. So what's wrong with the human heart? Secondly, the cure for the human heart. And then thirdly, how you know you've been cured. So what's wrong, what's the cure, and how you know you've gotten the cure? I hope that's a lot easier than the mess I made last week trying to introduce things. So we'll just do those three things this morning, okay? What's wrong, the cure, and how you know you've been cured. So let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 18 with the disciples' questions, the question about who's the greatest, and ask, how does this expose our heart, and what does it teach us about what is wrong with us, and why we need deep heart change to enter the kingdom? So let's look at this, okay? The disciples come to Jesus. The word indicates, that word come there, it indicates a certain formality to their approach. Okay, in other words, this isn't haphazard. This isn't, hey, we're walking down the road. Oh, you know, I've been thinking. This is planned. They've, in other words, they've been thinking about this. They've been probably um, arguing about this. And now they're going to get Jesus to weigh in on the issue. Because everybody's got an opinion and they need to know from the guy who's in charge what the, the truth is. And so they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are they really seeking? The Greek word is the Greek word megas, which, you know, is where we get mega from. And it's a comparative adjective used in measurement. So, if you're measuring length, mega means really long. If you're measuring height, it means really tall. If you're measuring age, it means really old. Whatever you're measuring, it's a way of of saying it's the the, the best in that system of measurement. So, the, the disciples are asking who they should measure themselves by. They're, they're, they're wanting to know where they stand. They want a measuring stick. So they know where they stand. And more importantly, so that they know where they stand in relation to everybody else. And I know all that's not here, but it comes out throughout the narrative in the gospel. As they, as they journey toward Jerusalem, Jesus begins to prepare them. Remember, by talking more and more and more about the death and the crucifixion 
and the suffering that's awaiting him there. But they aren't listening because over and over again, Matthew records arguments they're having about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to sit on his right hand and his left hand. And I think it culminates. It's just frightening. In Luke chapter 22, they're celebrating the Last Supper together. And Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to them. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Take, eat. And he's, he's, he's gathering them around the reality of the death that awaits him the next day. And we're told in Luke that as soon as he finished as soon as he finished giving them his body broken and his bloodshed, they began to argue about who would be the greatest at the table. They want a ranking system to decide their argument. They want categories by which they can determine who is ahead of who. And in the question, we get a snapshot of the human heart that there is a desire or a quest in all of us for ascendancy that's natural to every single one of us. The beginning pages of Genesis at the beginning of the biblical story tell how the first man and the first woman gave into the temptation of the serpent, the enemy of God. And the temptation to Adam and Eve was just this. Listen to these words. Here's what the serpent told them. God had told them not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And Satan said, well, God doesn't want you to eat because when you do, you will become like the Most High. You'll be like God. And there's a second story in Genesis 11, which was, I was reminded of walking around New York City this week, where the people get, of the earth get together and they decide, let's build a tower that reaches into the heavens to, to just celebrate our greatness. And it goes on to say in Genesis 11, and to make a name for ourselves. And so the cultures of the earth all come together and build this tower, the Tower of Babel, that reaches into the sky, that points you know, to their great ascendancy and their greatness, you know, in, in doing these things. And I just am so thankful for these stories in Genesis because not only do they show us where we came from, but they tell us why things are the way they are and what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with our hearts. That sin is a desire for ascendancy. It's a desire to become godlike, a desire to be ruled and not, a desire to rule and not to be ruled. It's a desire to make a name for myself, right? To declare my own greatness apart from God or, or to stand on top of the mountain, whether it's a dirt mound in the neighborhood or a specific industry or a political party or even an HOA and to look down on everybody else. I mean, we're talking about human pride and selfishness. Now, I want to give you one just silly illustration. I mean, and it really is silly, uh, but just so, so profound. Uh, I, I'm reading a book about narcissism in our culture and uh, the person who's re- reading the book reports, and I've not ever seen the show, but I'm sure some of you have. So teenagers, the show on, is it on MTV, My Super Sweet 16? Is it MTV? And so this person was reporting, uh, and this is a show where 16-year-olds that are obviously fabulously wealthy uh, plan these elaborate Sweet 16 parties for themselves where they are, you know, just the center of attention and everything's wonderful in their world. But This person reported, and I'm just going to read the report to you. She wrote, Atlanta teen Allison tells a party planner she wants to block off part of Peachtree Street so there can be a parade for, quote-unquote, my grand entrance to the party. So, Peachtree is a major thoroughfare, the planner reminds her. She responds, my sweet 16 is more important than than wherever they have to be. The planner says, but there's a hospital across the street. What if an ambulance can't get to the hospital? Quote, they can wait one second or go around, she says, cavalierly. When the planner finally turns to her mother, 
in exasperation, the mother says, if Allison wants it, make it happen. Isn't that, isn't that just ridiculous? I mean, do you, do you feel the movement of the human heart in that? Of this, this pursuit of ascendancy. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who's a great Puritan theologian, has a great way of kind of opening this up to us. He says, this, is just, I, this just makes me laugh even more so than, than the thing before. But he says, we see by manifold instances what a tendency high station has in men to make them to be of quite contrary disposition. Let me translate that. He says, what he means is, is when, people, uh, when people get you know, full of themselves or they have a high station in society, it makes them jerks. That's basically what he's saying. But, here, but listen to his translation of this. He says, this is just so marvelous. He says, if one worm be a little exalted above another by having more dust or a bigger dunghill, how much does he make of himself? And what a distance does he keep from those that are below him? I mean, do you hear that? You know, I mean, you know, we're just worms who are, you know, we have a little more dunghill to play with. And yet we can be so prideful towards one another. And that's what's wrong with the world. The Bible says that's where wars and poverty and the disintegration of the family all flow from. This heart attitude. And Jesus has come to undo that, which is why he says you can't live this way and still be a part of his kingdom. Because his kingdom is opposed to the pride and the arrogance of sinful humanity. His kingdom is about living independence upon God and submission and humility modeled by children. And so don't miss the point. When Jesus has become... Like a child, he isn't saying the disciples should stop striving to be great and should instead instead strive to be like little children. The purpose of the parable and the teaching is to get them to stop striving. The whole idea of rankings is something that can keep you out of the kingdom, even if the standard for the rankings is humility. In other words, don't go from being proud of your great things to being proud of your humility. He doesn't tell them who's great in the kingdom. He warns them that there is a desire for that he warns them of their desire for categories to know who's better than who or the very things that will keep them out of the kingdom. So one commentary puts it this way: they said the unchildlike piety of achievement, the unchildlike piety of achievements, to be replaced by childlike reception and trust. We have to turn and become like little children. So you see, our hearts are sick with desire for power and position and ascendancy. And that's what's wrong, but Jesus also shows us the cure here. And the cure is just this, the gospel and a life consistent with the gospel. So if what's wrong with our hearts is pride and selfishness, then the fruit of Jesus' work in our lives will be humility. And and this is one of our core values as a church. We put it in there at the very beginning because we understood how central, how crucial this is to really living the Christian life well. Humility as a core value. We, we, We say it this way, downward mobility is a lifestyle. That the more you get in contact with Jesus, the more the fruit of his work is going to be humility. Now, go back to that phrase that I mentioned, that the unchildlike piety of achievement. What, what in the world is that? What is that person talking about? And I would just put it this way. They're talking about fig leaves. It's about fig leaves. You remember the story in Genesis, if you're not familiar with it? When, when Adam and Eve sin against God, when the first man and the first woman sin against God by eating the fruit of the tree he told them not to eat, they hear him call their name, and the first thing they do is they run. They, what, what we're told is, is they realize their nakedness, and then they run and hide because they're scared. And then they take fig leaves, and they try to sew fig leaves together to, um, to cover up their nakedness. It's just a marvelous, I mean, it's a marvelous psychological, emotional 
uh, reality, the story that's tapping into. And so when, when this person talks about the unchildlike piety of achievement, of all of this trying to ascend to the, the, the greatness that you know, we so desperately need, we feel naked and we're trying to cover ourselves. That's what's happening in that. And Jesus says, entering the kingdom means you stop doing that. You stop trying to prove yourself. You stop trying to provide for yourself. You stop trying to make a name for yourself. You stop adopting a godlike posture, you know, trying to control your life and ex- exert your will upon your circumstances. And instead, like a little child who can't reach the juice in the fridge, you ask Jesus to help you. I mean, that's what it means to repent. That's the change he's calling us to. That's what it looks like to turn and to become like a little child. It's not pursuing power to embrace a lifestyle of downward mobility, to submit to God and become a servant and, like Jesus, pursue your own nothingness. Because, you see, this is the way the gospel works. I mean, the gospel is completely different from anything else. The gospel is not religion. The gospel, you know, you don't have to try to ascend. You don't have to strive to ascend to God. You don't have to bear yourself up to meet the expectations and the standards of God through religious fervor and moral achievement. What the gospel says is, you don't have to ascend to him. He's come down to you. And Jesus, he descended to meet you at the point of your need. You see, religion, all this, all this religious impulse, religion is about making a name for yourself with God, trying to claw your way to God. If I do these things, then God will love me. But the gospel is just the opposite. The gospel is not about what you do to claw your way up to God. It's about what Jesus has come to do in coming down to rescue us. The most high became the most, most low. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that Philippians 2 passage? We did get that. I was, we did get that right as a call to worship. Who was God? The one who was God did not consider his, his godness something to be held on to, but God made himself nothing. And came down to be obedient even to death upon a cross. I mean, that, do you marvel at that? I mean, that's the most amazing, wonderful thing that could ever be told to humans. We don't have to climb our way up to God. He's come down and made himself nothing. And that's good news. We're saved by grace, and that means we're saved not because of anything we have done to merit it or deserve it. It's a gift. And that means if you're a Christian, you can't use your Christianity as a way of thinking better about yourself than everybody else because you're not a Christian because of anything you do. You're not a Christian because you're smarter than other people or because you're more committed than other people or because you're nicer than other people. Believe me, I've known a lot of Christians. That's not true. No, you were nothing. Nothing. I was nothing. And Jesus came and rescued us for only one reason. God's good pleasure. It was not because of anything he saw in you. It was not because of anything you did to merit it. And so if you're proud, it's because you're still operating in a religious construct. You're still trying to ascend. But when you see that you were guilty and weak and powerless to do anything, and that Jesus descended, that he came into the world to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have lived, there's only one thing. It has to humble you. That's what we just sang about a minute ago. And so a warning, just another warning, the church, I believe, not this one necessarily, but some, and and to some sense this one too, but the church, as I've experienced it over my short years, is full of people who are deeply committed. And it's beautiful, their commitment, and who are at church every time the doors are open and read their Bibles and live a life of service and help people. But what I've seen is underneath all of that, 
there's still this this sense of pride. They're full of pride. They're impatient. They're rude. They're hypercritical of other people. They're judgmental. They're joyless. They're constantly comparing themselves to others. And Jesus says those things don't. Those other things don't count if there's no humility. Pride is a sure sign that you're religious, but it's the one thing that will keep you out of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, unless you turn and become like little children, verse 3, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That verse contains a double negative in the original language that adds emphasis. It's never, no, never, no, never, no, never. It can never happen. So one translation just puts it this way, if we could have fun with this for a minute. One, one translator says there are no grown-ups in heaven. And I got to thinking about that. What is it about transitioning from childhood to adulthood that disqualifies us from the kingdom? So just a couple things I was thinking about. Children, children don't try to provide for themselves. They're completely dependent. They rely on their parents to give them food and clothes and to take them places. Children don't have any, uh, anything to fall back on. They don't think about savings accounts and 401ks. They don't need to. They are, there are no grown-ups in heaven because grown-ups believe in hard work and self-sufficiency, not in trust and dependence and faith. Children understand their status. They know they're small. And I think there are no grown-ups in heaven because grown-ups have forgotten how small they are in the big world they live in. Um, kids say what they are. Have you noticed this about Children. There's absolutely no pretense in them. They don't try to hide. If they think it, they say it. If they feel it, they say it. And we make fun of grown-ups who do that because grown-ups are supposed to be more thoughtful. Kids ask. They have to ask for everything, don't they? Pretty much. I think there are no grown-ups in heaven because the one thing a grown-up can't do is ask somebody else for help because somehow it means you failed. But then I thought, you know, kids play. I think there's no grown-ups in heaven because grown-ups are way too serious. And heaven is about play and frolic and joy and celebration and imagination. And quite honestly, those things are hard for grown-ups. So so (laughs) Jesus is saying there has to be a conversion. You see, that's what's the cure for what ails the human heart is the gospel, the realization of the gospel that we don't ascend. We don't, we don't have to ascend. We don't have to achieve. We don't have to pursue. You know, we don't have to do any of that. God has come down. And the only way you become a Christian is to stop trying to ascend and to turn to Jesus and ask Him to help. So what cures, if, if what's wrong with the human heart is this arrogance and pride that comes natural to it. And what cures it is the gospel and a life consistent with the gospel. And that's what the, passage, the rest of this passage is about. And so thirdly, the way you know you've been cured then. This last point. The way you know you've been cured. The way you, wait, the way you know you've been humbled by the gospel. Uh, that you've turned and become like a little child. Or that he's beginning to do that work in you. Is, is just this. It's how you treat other people. Especially those people Jesus refers to as little ones here. Now look, look closely at this passage. And what happens is Jesus changes from talking about little children. In verses 1 through 4. To in verse 6 and verse 10 and verse 14. So three times he makes this general kind of title Little ones. He, taught, he refers us to these little ones that are among those who believe in him. Now, who are these little ones? They are people in humble circumstances. Children, I want to put it this way, children and those like children. Children, obviously, because he puts a child there and he says become like, so children, but also those who are like children. In other words, those among Jesus' disciples that are pushed to the side by the larger society. And thought to have little value. The nobodies, the low, the least, the opposite of the great. 
that we listed at the beginning, right? The uneducated, the poor, the emotionally and physically handicapped, those who have been caught in technicolor sins, very new Christians, the children in our midst, these categories of people. And Jesus says that we have, the way you know that you've been cured, the way you know the gospel is beginning to come home to your hearts and really taking, kind of humbling you out of the pride that is natural to your heart is you begin, your, your basic orientation towards this category of people, these little ones, begins to change. And there's a couple of things Jesus says here about the way we begin to live with people. First, if you look in verse 5, he says that what we're supposed to do is we are to receive these little ones. Verse 5. And that, that word receive means that you welcome or you show hospitality to. In other words, the way you know you've been cured of the pride that is native to the human heart is that you begin to make room in your life for the kinds of people Jesus calls little ones. You accept them without trying to change them. Or the way I thought to say it, you become the kind of nobody that other nobodies feel comfortable, feel comfortable around. Right? You hear, I mean, you know what I'm saying? You become the kind of nobody that other nobodies feel comfortable around. I mean, that's, the church should be full of people like that. One of the most beautiful things to me, and it's because I have four small children, one of them, a couple of them not so small anymore, but they've been there. One of the most beautiful things to me is to watch a man, an older man who's very successful and dignified and, you know, wears a three-piece suit to work every day, and yet you get him over there in kids' worship and you get him on the floor playing with the children. And it's just, I love to go see that. It's just so beautiful to me because that's what the gospel does. And the more the gospel begins to take root in us, the more our life together as a church even should be oriented towards those who are weaker in the faith than, we, than some of us without being afraid of watering down the truth. The church, I mean, there are all kinds of applications. Just dream with me about these applications. The church should be a place that is, that is hospitable to newcomers, to the poor and the homeless and the big sinners. But I think, and this is because I'm a dad, most of all to our children. We have, and this is my, my son was on me. I told the story last week. A lot of you weren't here. He came back from summer camp, and we asked him how it went. And he said, great. I love the chapels. And we really, he said, yeah, the speaker was great because I can understand him, unlike when I listen to you talk. That's what he said. If you would talk like that, I would want to sit in church and listen to your sermons. But I can't understand what you say. I thought, great. Because I really believe we have to make the sermons and the songs we sing and the liturgy we follow in worship and even community group settings, we have to make them accessible to 10-year-olds. We ought to be able to to involve our children in everything we do. That's our job, to pass the faith to them, to make it accessible to them, not to push them off to the side, but to bring them in and put them right in the middle of what we're doing. It should be accessible to 10-year-olds. It should be accessible to those who don't have the level of education as most of us in this room do, or to the poor, or to people who speak different languages than us, or have different color skin than most of us, or whatever it might be, that the little ones feel welcomed here, that we receive them. And so I got to thinking about this phrase, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Anybody know where that is? It's on the Statue of Liberty. And I was there yesterday morning. And I just began to think that we should post that on the front of the church. To welcome anybody who wants to come. And to receive these little ones. But then secondly, and this is a really big deal, not only are we to receive them, the way you know the gospel is beginning to take root and humble you, is you not only receive these little ones, but you clear the way for them. Verse 6. 
You don't make it hard for them to find a place in the church. When Jesus says there, don't cause them to sin, that word sin is really the word stumbling block. He means don't put a stumbling block in their way that causes them to fall away from the faith. Don't require things of them they're not able to do. And let me try to explain what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you use your strength or your knowledge or your resources to make it hard for someone who is weak or ignorant or poor to come to Jesus, watch out. Or if you're lazy about sin and the result is that you keep your kids from coming to Jesus, watch out. Look at verse 6, because this is a really, really big deal. And I love it because Jesus, Jesus is ramped up about this. He's exaggerating to prove the point. And I love that because I exaggerate and I, use, and I can use this as an, ex, as an excuse to continue to exaggerate. Jesus exaggerates on purpose. He uses hyperbole. He says, it would be better for you, if you do this, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck. Now that millstone, it, would be this, gigantic, it was a word that you, this gigantic stone that had to be carried by horses or oxen or something because it was too large and too heavy for a human to carry by themselves. And he said, it would be better for you to tie one of those things around your neck and to go out into the deepest part of the sea and to drop yourself off a boat and sink to the bottom. It would be better for you to do that than to cause one of the little ones to stumble. I mean, he's... He, he, you know, he's no games. I mean, he, he, is, he is really, really ramped up about this. Now, follow what happens, though. He goes on from there <clears throat> to warn, you know, not only of leading these little ones into sin, to a more general warning about how your personal sins can affect other people, verses 7 through 9. And Jesus calls us, and again, he, I love it, he exaggerates. Jesus loves hyperbole. Actually, remember that when I use hyperbole. I'm becoming Christ-like. Right? <laughs> he calls us to be vigilant about our sins for others' sake. Jesus calls me to be vigilant about my sins for your sake. He calls me as a father. He warns me that my sins affect my children. My idolatries are imprinted upon their lives. My sins will have impact on them. I'm not an island unto myself, and therefore he calls me to take decisive action to be rid of sin, to cut off a hand or gouge out an eye, or do whatever I have to do to deal with the sin in my life, because it's not loving to just leave it there and do nothing. Don't play around, he's saying. Don't linger over these things. Get rid of it. Because it affects other people. And if you don't take this aggressive approach to the sin in your life, do you have any idea of the danger you're in? Do you have any idea of the danger you put your kids in, or put the people in your life in? I feel like I'm straining for words to say this, but twice Jesus warns us that if we are lackadaisical with our sin, we put ourselves in danger of the fires of hell. Or worse, we put those who are weaker than us or our own children coming after us in the danger of the fires of hell. And so he says, verse 10, we'll just finish here. He says, don't despise. Don't despise children and those who are like children. Don't despise them. Do you see that verse 10? And that word means to look down your nose at someone else or to think you're better than someone else. Don't reject people. Here's how you know the gospel's taking root. How you're being humbled out of the pride and the arrogance and the selfishness that is native to the human heart. That is the source of everything that is wrong in the world. Here's how you know. You, you stop despising. You stop looking down your nose at somebody else and think you're better than them. You stop rejecting people in hum, humble circumstances or ignoring them or... You know, you're careful not to make it hard for them to live with you. That's what he says. And Jesus feels very strongly about this. Don't exclude your kids. Don't make it hard for people who don't have the education you do or don't have the resources that you do to live with you and to come to me. 
And we see the motivation for living this way. And this, this is just really great. And this, in verse eight, 18, verse 10, he says, Don't despise one of these little ones. And then he gives the reason why. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? And I, I came across a guy who explained this to me, I think, pretty well. And, and he just said this. He said, if you look in the Old Testament, every time you see angels represented in the Old Testament, think about this, Isaiah 6. In places like this, every time angels are talked about in the Old Testament, we're always told that they have wings that cover their faces. Because God is holy. And, you, and he's so holy that even the angels can't look upon him. He, he's unapproachable in the sense that he is utterly set apart. His eyes are like blazing fire, we're told. And, and so even the angels who attend to him, who, who swoop around his throne, we're told in Isaiah, they have two wings where they fly, and with two wings they cover their faces as a sign of modesty and humility before him, but not these angels. Not these, not the one, not the angels who've been given. And I don't know, you know, guardian angel, what does all that mean? Nobody's sure about exactly. But there, but in some sense, there are angels who have been sent and have given the assignment of protecting the children, protecting the little ones, children and those who are like children, protecting the poor and the weak and the broken and the and technicolor sinners and, and all these, these little ones that we've been talking about. And the ones who've been sent by God to protect them, they don't have to hide their faces from him. They have immediate access to him. Why? Because their assignment is so important. Because his heart for the little ones is so great that the angels who've been sent to guard and protect them and who are ministering to them, they have immediate access to them. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. I mean, Jonathan and I were sitting there, have you ever read that before? No, no. I mean, what? I mean, get this. Your angels, most, most of us, most of us would have to say, my angel has to cover his face. But theirs don't. <laughs> so, let's wrap this up. The human heart is sick with pride and selfishness, and the cure is the gospel. You don't have to ascend. He's descended to you. And a life consistent with the gospel of moving deeper and deeper into the kind of humility that characterizes Jesus and all those who are part of his kingdom and follow him. And the way you know that you've been cured, the way you know that the gospel is beginning to take root is that you do everything you can to pursue the little ones, to receive them, to not put stumbling blocks in their way, to not despise them and look down on them. To treat them the way that Jesus has treated you. And Jesus ends with a parable of the lost sheep. You see that there in verses 11. Actually, verse 11 is, is not in the ASV. If you have concern about that, we can talk about that later. It's because in some of the earlier manuscripts, it's not there. And so they've, they've excluded it. But in verse 12, he begins with this parable of the lost sheep. And he, he represents himself as a shepherd who's been sent to leave the 99 who are already found and to go after the one, the little one who is lost. And Jesus says, don't forget. I mean, don't forget that you were lost, that you were a little one. That you were in danger, that you, that you had wandered from the fold of God, as the old hymn says, and that Jesus sought you. And that he put you on his shoulder and he brought you home and he rejoiced over you more than the 99 that had not left. And he, he is the one who has great joy in you. And the more that you see and the more you begin to understand the depths to which he has gone to save you and the joy that he has over you, the more you can turn to the little ones in your life and not despise them, but receive them. The more your heart will be humbled. By the reality of the gospel. So don't forget, you were lost. You were a little one and Jesus came in search of you.
unless you turn and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are hard words, and I've talked too long, uh, like I am prone to do. And I just pray that your words uh, would come home to our hearts in a way that maybe is new or in a way that, that, that really shows forth the power of the, the Scripture to begin to speak into the places of our lives that we like to keep hidden from you. I pray that, that you would come and, and that you would do this. I pray that we would be a people that would be known in our city to be a people who walk in humility, that who adopt downward mobility as a lifestyle, of people who, who seek to, to seek their own nothingness, which means their own death. And I realize how hard that is, that, that you're calling us in this passage to die and to become nothing and to go down into our own suffering just the way you did, because we follow you, the one who, who though he was God, did not consider his Godness something to be held on to, but became nothing and became obedient even to death on a cross. And Jesus, we know that our hearts, this is not natural to our hearts, it's something you must do in us, and so we ask. We beg, we plead that you would come, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would be formed in us, that you would form your life in us, that you would take our hard, cold hearts that seek to ascend, and that you would give us hearts of flesh that are humble like little children. Make us like children, and help us to value, and to love, and to support, and to watch over the children and those like children that you've given to us that we might be faithful in following you, that we might bear fruit, and that fruit would be to your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just remember that all of our jockeying for position and all of our seeking to ascend uh, to higher ranks and to rank ourselves according to one another, we're like worms fighting over dunghills. But what, what we learn in Philippians 2 is that the one who was God and became nothing and became obedient even to the point of death, that God has raised him up and has seated him in the heavenly paces and has given him a name that is above every name, that at his name every knee should bow. And what that means is, is if you put your faith in him, uh, then he can give you what your heart is ultimately longing for. He can give you the name that you're looking for in all of the things you're doing, all of the ways you're fighting over dunghills. And so put your faith in Jesus. And if your faith is in Jesus, then not only... Uh, do you go to heaven to be with him, but you get a name like his, where the Father now, as I lift my hands, lifts his hands to bless you and to speak of his love and his care for you. So that's exactly what we get in the benediction. This is, this is the reputation, this is the name, this is the hope your heart is looking for, to hear the Father say these things. So put your faith in Jesus. And if your faith is in him, then hear the Father's voice. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.